Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 67 in our teaching series, As in the Days of Noah, titled Summary of the Book of Revelation, Part 2. Our teacher is Alan Smith. Amen. If we're looking at this teaching, this continual teaching on As in the Days of Noah, basically, I guess, technically, I could teach on it until Jesus comes, which could be before next week. But uh, it's amazing how we continually teach on this topic. As we're looking at the book of Revelation, I like to continually approach it. It's like a, uh, I view the scriptures like flying an airplane, um, going into the same airport perhaps, but on different runways. It's as we view the scriptures, as we look at the scripture, we land on the scripture and we flying around and then we see the big picture of the, let's say the book of revelation we continually are working on the big picture we might land today but as you continuously land at the same airport you start seeing more that you missed the first time you landed or the second time you landed or so every time we approach it I approach it as another landing on the same airport, but getting a better visual of what's going on around me and around that airport. And when I approach the scriptures that way, it helps me uh, in retaining. I am, I've said this a lot of times, I can, it's amazing how uh, not capable of memorizing as I am. I'm just, I can. Uh, where a lot of people are pretty good and some are great. I don't know what you have for somebody that's very poor at memorizing. But my memorization is, as God was running me through the assembly line of heaven, somewhere or another, somebody dropped that little card to input into my program. So I've never been one that could memorize well. But on the other hand, if I understand something, I've got it. So to understand something means a lot to me because I'm not good at memorizing. But I have noticed if I understand something, then it lodges at another place that's not memorization. I'm not really sure what that is. So when I approach the scriptures, I like to do it if possible with a level of understanding, not memorization, so that hopefully some... A few of you out there might be like me. You're not very good at memorizing. You know, we used to have to memorize scriptures, children, all that. And I'm like, this is not going to work. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, there's times I'll even have to go to the front to, to, I can't find a book in the Bible. And you'd think as much as I studied the Bible, that wouldn't be a problem. But all of a sudden, if I just go in my understanding, okay, this happened, this happened, oh yeah, right here it is. If I go from an understanding viewpoint, then I can get to where I'm going. It's just uh, we have some places we're weak and some places we're stronger. So I tend to try to approach it from an understanding. So as we view the scriptures, even again this morning, I will approach it just like an airplane landing at the same airport but after you've done it eight or ten times you start to notice the landscape a little more than the first time you landed and that brings me understanding I get a feel for it so this morning as we approach this topic uh, 
as in the days of Noah. We'll try this approach again today, and I'm going to focus a little bit in the beginning as we move on. There again, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing myself as trying to do, we did the seven churches, Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and now I'm doing, believe it or not, a summary of the book of Revelation. Just a little summary to bring the book of Revelation uh, into focus here. Uh, and on the outset, I would say we have the Apostle Paul that came on the scene in Acts chapter 9. And the Apostle Paul, he was a Jew. Of, he, he knew the Scriptures better than anybody. He, he believed them so much that he had, of course, Christians killed and captured. And he ended up being the, uh, the chief Christian or the chief sinner, according to which one you want to read. And um, so God, it seems, looked down into Jerusalem. He saw the chief of sinners, as he called himself, the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, in me first is this grace been given. So we start seeing the Apostle Paul is inserted into this. If you take Paul's writing out, you basically got Judaism. All right, just consider that thought. You don't have to swallow it all. But if you take the writings of Paul out, you basically got Judaism. You've got Old Testament. You've got revelation of Jesus, of course. But still, you, where the big insertion of the grace of God came, including uh, there's, neither, there's no difference, Jew, Gentile, bond, free, male or female. Um, you would think that that understanding would go through the world like wildfire in today's culture, but it's not. And But this Apostle Paul is the one that brings all of this understanding uh, to the table. Jewish traditions is what prevailed at that time. So you, and the reason I'm giving that as an example, it's important to make distinctions in the Bible. Because if you're not careful, you'd all start just going in together. And uh, it's important for understanding reasons that we learn to make a distinction. So if I'm looking at Paul and the other writings, I can tell if I pull out Paul's writings, all of a sudden I basically have prophecy, Judaism. And as you get over into the book of Revelation, you basically got prophecy being fulfilled and these type things. And that's the reason when you insert Paul's writings, Ephesians 3, he says that he has the revelation of the mystery. And so the mystery is different than prophecy. Prophecy is known information. Mystery is unknown information. So I make that little distinction. So when I'm looking at these, so when I look at the book of Revelation, I have also then the book of Daniel, which is prophecy, to bring me understanding to the book of Revelation. So prophecy reveals prophecy, gives understanding to prophecy. There again, when you get to the Apostle Paul in this message of grace that he uh, brought to the table, the message of grace did not change prophecy. It added to. It added to. But it's a secret or a mystery revealed of the cross of Christ. So when we get to the book of Revelation, we see the seven churches. 
So the letter was actually, this gospel, this revelation is actually written to seven churches. And we never want to leave that understanding as we read, as we continue to read through the book of Revelation. All right, let's begin here. It says, as in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What thou seest, he says, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. That is what was said to John in Revelation uh, chapter 1 and verse 11. Now, as we go here to the seven churches, this is a little uh, diagram that I use. I'm hitting it again. You got Ephesus, the first, you got church here of Ephesus, the first church, and we know that it is the time of Jesus and the. These, th these seven churches are seven actual churches, but I also have mentioned to you that they have prophetically now, looking back the last 2,000 years, we can see that it's been a kind of a period of time through the last uh, 2,000 years, which is very interesting. So just in history, you can see this and pick it up. But in Ephesus, and you know the church of Ephesus, when you get into the, to the seven churches, it's interesting to keep in mind uh, the, the uh, book of Ephesians that Paul wrote to that church. Very, very interesting because you got the apostle Paul actually went to the church in Ephesus. And also he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter of the book of Ephesians to that church, probably 30 uh, probably 40 years or more before John wrote a letter to Ephesus. Isn't that something? So here, here you got the church established, uh, probably by, probably by Paul or one of his uh, cohorts. And so then you have Paul writes a letter then to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian letter that we have, so we can kind of get a context of what's happening is that first letter. Then John, you see there was a big, I'm using as a, this first one as an example, but I'll not do the rest of them this way. But, but this first church here had a huge revival. Uh, it was the, the power, the spirit was being poured out. And uh, when I talk about the, see here we have Paul. Paul always went to the Jewish synagogues first, right? Until about 63 A.D. So Paul had about 25, 30 years that he went to the Jewish synagogues in each city that he went to. He went there first. Uh, then after Acts 28, 28, he said, I'm not going there anymore. So we have then what we call the prison epistles. It was written and Paul didn't go there anymore. It's his prophecy in Isaiah that says that they're not going to hear the truth. And so Paul quotes that in Acts 28, 28. And he says, uh, okay, I'm not going to go to them anymore because they just can't hear it anymore. I also thought that was convenient for Paul because there he went into prison. But anyway, he couldn't go too far. And uh, so after Acts 28, 28, in the prison epistles, we start seeing that Paul's writing in light of not going to the Jew first. And so we can see in his writings, it's always to the Jew first. And then we need to consider, since he went to the Jew first, the first converts of a church in that area were Jews. 
So all of these churches were the foundation of them are, are Jewish believers. And so there again, when I say you insert Paul, Paul comes with more information. But Paul would also get a Jewish converts and they'd go, well, basically they finally got run out of the synagogues usually because he was converting the synagogue that Jesus was the Messiah. And the uh, traditional uh, Judaizers, of course, had a problem with that and they'd run them off and they'd go down the street and start an assembly. But Paul went to the Jews, he converted the Jews, he created a church split and he took them down the road. That's what happened. <laughs> and so then he took these new converts, they'd start a, a local assembly that was not based in the hometown, home place of the Jewish synagogue. But it's important to remember the first Christians that he converted in these churches was more than likely Jews, even though we know we have a few Gentiles scattered. And then they quickly added to the church because of Paul's message the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God, neither male nor female. Everybody come just like you are. Well, you couldn't do that in a Jewish synagogue. Everybody realize that? It wasn't happening. If you were a Gentile, matter of fact, you had to sit on the back row. You couldn't even come up front. They call you a proselyte. And they'd let you, the closest end you could get is the back row. So Paul comes in, converts some Jews. Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, I've been up to the third heaven. I've talked to Jesus. He's given me all these instructions. Now I'm to give them to the churches. So then he'd convert these people, go out in the street, start a new church with the more what we're calling the full gospel of Christ, the full revelation of Christ, which includes these freedoms that we're talking about in Christ today. There's neither Jew nor there's neither bond or free Jew or Gentile. So we're all in what he called and introduced this idea of a one new man being composed of us all together. And, uh, and, and you got to remember the Jew wasn't better than the Gentile. As some today would like to actually do that. Uh, I'm not for promoting a Gentile over a Jew nor a Jew over a Gentile because we are now one new man. We're uh, called the body of Christ. And this is a, a new concept, if you will. And uh, it, was, it was piggybacked on the idea that the Gentiles, prophecy said Gentiles would come in to the kingdom of God, but it would be done through, now this is key, make distinctions here. Gentiles would come in to the kingdom of God, but it would be through the Jewish nation. That's prophecy. But today, Gentiles come into the kingdom of God in spite of the Jewish nation. Totally different message. Totally different situation. And so, But we have to understand that. That doesn't minimize the Jewish nation the more we minimize the Gentile nation. Just historically, we must understand how this thing unfolded and why it unfolded. So why are we so big on the Jews then? It's because I know that this period of time, called the fullness of times, when this fullness, there's going to be the fullness of times is going to become full. And that's this inner, this, uh, we call it a parenthesis in Scripture. This parenthesis was stuck into this prophecy of us for the last 2,000 years of this neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free, male or female, time period uh, 
is actually going to come to a close, according to this book. And so when it starts coming to a close, then God starts working through Israel again. The 144,000, newsflash, according to the Word of God, are Jewish believers. It's not, we're not the 144,000. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, my apologies. It's not you. Plus, they were in trouble when their numbers were greater than 144,000. But nonetheless, so as we see this truth being unfold, we want to have understanding of what's actually taking place. When you really grab the fullness of the gospel of the grace of God, it should bring tears to your face until you meet him face to face. Because it is so incredible what God has done and the privilege of the time we're living in. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, you don't get cleaned up and come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he'll clean you up. That's the difference. It's not a religion. You clean up and then get to the deity. It's a relationship. You come to him and he'll makes a promise that he will clean you up. Sometimes he uses a wire brush, and I don't much like that. But he, he really scrubs deep sometimes. So as we view the Scriptures with a level of understanding, one way you know you're getting understanding is, number with me, number one, I start to, I can retain the imagery, I can retain the storyline of it when I start having understanding. But it does this other thing to my soul and my spirit. I fall in love with Jesus so much more. It's just such an incredible... I've had times that I'd say, God, surely the revelation, the understanding needs to back off. I don't think I can stand it. Because with understanding, it increases the relationship. It's what it does. Uh, when you realize what the veterans of this country have done for us sitting here, that relationship that you have with veterans will make you cry. We're not sitting here because of great preachers. We're not sitting, standing here like we are because of great presidents. We're sitting here like we are because of veterans of this country. People have fought for this freedom. Can you, isn't that amazing? People have fought for it. So we sit here in the enjoyment of it. But we have understanding of what the truth is. Uh, same way with the Scriptures and with what Jesus has done. So, so we see the, uh, the, the first church of Ephesus uh, gives us understanding. Then we've got the Roman persecution, we call it. The uh, Church of Smyrna tends to cover this time period in the last 2,000 years of 100 to 313. The rise of the Catholic Church, 313. Can we got here till the end because we know that it's a major factor. Uh, now, a lot of people here, and I've got it in these notes as we go forward. I'm going to insert it for the first time here. Uh, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that the church will go through the tribulation period. 
And I understand that. We have post, mid, trib, and we got preterist view, and we got all of these views of, of the scripture. And what brings some confusion to that, I've taught you on, on Christianity and Christodom. Christodom is the world of Christianity, but, in my, but not everyone's Christians in Christodom. Y'all understand that? You get that? Well, I'm of the persuasion that Christians are going to be... I had a fellow the other day say, well, Alan, you're one of those that like to escape everything. I said, I thought about it, and I, I said, you know, you're right. I said, I accepted Jesus, and I'm escaping hell. How about you? I am an escaper. I want to escape <laughs> hell, the wrath of God. So I used to be offended at that statement. I'm not anymore. I wear it with a badge. So, but Christendom will go through the tribulation. But I'm of the persuasion that Christians won't. And I always say that it can, I, give, I give or take seven years. I'll throw that in there for just to confuse people a little and let them know I'm, I wouldn't die on that hill. <laughs> but uh, I'm persuaded it's, it is pre to mid. And the reason I say that, uh, I believe we're, we're somewhere between probably the fifth and sixth, seventh seal. I know the four horsemen have been released. So I know we've been through four or five seals. And uh, anyway, I'll not get into all that. So we say, we see that. Uh, then we have supremacy for a thousand years. That's what you know, basically we call the dark ages, if you know your history. Uh, then we have the Protestant Re Reformation. There's actually some uh, that view the Protestant Reformation uh, as the time that the tribulation began. And that's not with a good light. They're viewing the Reformation as the great horror in the book of Revelation. But it, you don't need that teaching because it's not true. Then we have what we call the prophetic awakening, uh, which started, uh, it's been around two, three hundred years, actually. And um, it has a, uh, I've got there 1798 uh, there was a lot of conferences back in that day. Things uh, God started. Of course, you got the Gutenberg Press on what fifteen hundreds or something. You got the multiplication of the Word of God. It started going forth. Uh, then the prophetic awakening started. Uh, basically, the whole church was in replacement theology up until this started happening. Now, in the prophetic awakening, they were predicting that the Jews would would they're they're going to be back in in Israel. They, the prophetic people of that day started predicting that even though the, most of the church was in what we call replacement theology, and that is that the church replaces the Jews. Anytime you read about the Jewish nation, we now have the understanding, now nah, it's not Jew, it's really the church. So we're saying uh, there's, so the, you can see for 2,000 years the Jews had been dispersed out of Israel. Since Titus came through in 70 A.D., the Jews were dispersed. They had been dispersed almost 2,000 years. So you can see why the great theologians, uh, because all of this had to take place, the Jews had to be in Israel. They had to be in their nation. They had to be in their homeland. They had not been there for a couple thousand years. So you can see how the theologians started saying, hey, it's got to be mean something else. So that's where replacement theology, and a lot of people are still, believe it or not, I don't doubt it, over 50% of the Christian 
of Christianity is in replacement theology even yet. They don't, we're actually a little bit of a minority that believes that the Jewish nation still means something. And uh, most, people, most Christians believe they replaced the Jews. Uh, so anyway, so then, uh, and a lot of that's where you get uh, the hate of the Jews. What happened with Hitler? He pushed that narrative that the church was, uh, and so he, he would push that narrative. And the narrative was that the Jews is the one that killed Christ. The church now replaces the Jewish nation, so we need to kill them. And so, you know, figure that one out. But that's what the, the narrative was pushed. Then you got the time of judgment, opening of the seven seals, which happens in the Laodicea church time period, which there's no doubt we're in that. That being the case, we know that the seven seals. Now you can say, well, Alan, how do you know that? And I've shown you this before. You know, you got the seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven vials of wrath of God. Now I've done this several times, but I'm hoping when each time I do it, you've got a little more understanding for it. You know, you can't get that in one blip. So I keep referring to it, and then I'll keep showing you. So with this in mind, we know we're in the Laodicea church age. What you need to understand is the seven seals, at least uh, probably six, and then you hit the seven seals are in the Laodicea church age. You see? And I know we're at least through the fifth seal, you got the white horse, red horse. We've been through those a little bit. And then you got the martyrs and earthquakes. So we're somewhere between earthquakes and angels, I feel quite certain. Now, you've got to compare that to the prophecy of Joel. And in the prophecy of Joel, you want to prophesy your sons and daughters, dream dreams, prophesy, yada, yada, yada. And then there'll be fire and vapor of smoke. There'll be great earthquakes. The sun will be turned to blue. All right. That part hasn't happened yet. So that goes right here. We're up through the earthquakes. When we start seeing the earthquakes at a greater shaking, we know we're going to, the second part of the prophecy of Joel has picked back up again. Because in the prophecy of Joel, you had this parentheses of 2,000 years. You see, the prophecy of Joel started your young, your daughter, with all the 12 and the first of the book of Acts, all that started. But then you had this huge parenthesis. People will say, well, you see, they were looking for Jesus to come right back. And now it's been 2,000 years. <clears throat> so if we're not careful, we're going to say, well, this, none of this is really true. It's been 2,000 years, and everybody's still saying second coming of Christ. What they don't realize, God stuck in what He calls a parenthesis. It's in the Scriptures everywhere. you got prophecy going along. I don't know if God wakes up one morning or what He does, but He's got all this prophecy going along. God says, I'm going to surprise everybody. I'm going to put the Apostle Paul in there. I'm going to raise him up as chief sinner. And I'm going to say, I'm going to pour my grace out to all the earth. And the Jews are walking around like, well, this ain't what we heard in the Torah and all that. What's the deal? It's because God pops something right in the middle of something. And He does that through the whole Bible. And I think He does it on purpose. So none of our systematic thinking will work. I declare I think He does. Because you get your system down, He'll pop those verses in there that'll list... It's like he, like he cuts a bunch of trees and throws over your perfect path. And so, so anyway, God deals in what we call parentheses. You call them, when you're reading things, you'll, you'll come across something, they'll, it'll say, this is parenthetical. 
what that parenthetical mean. The only thing it means is a parenthesis. And he took the sentence and it went like that, and he sticks in 2,000 years. Go figure. Now, so we know that at the last part of the seven seals, with each one of these things, the seven seals is in the Laodicea church. The seven trumpets are in the last seal. And the, and, and the vials of God are in uh, the seventh trumpet. So you got these time periods. It's not that one starts and one ends. It's that they pour into each other. And so you can see how you could say that the church is going through all of it. The Laodicea church even. But then it's helpful to make a distinction between Christendom and Christ, true Christianity. You see, you got, you got to start making some other distinctions to get your clear understanding. Now, that's enough for that little... So I'll keep inserting these things. If y'all keep showing up listening to me, I'm gonna keep, we'll keep bringing a little more revelation to it. Now, there's four counts of the second coming, I call it. I'm not going to belabor this at all. I've introduced it to you twice. So there's four, the, the book of Revelation, the whole New Testament is about his first coming and then his life, then his second coming. There again, getting understanding of the whole New Testament. He's born, he lives a life, he's coming again. Overview of the whole New Testament. The book of Revelation gives four accounts. The first one's not as distinct as the next three, but nonetheless, you have what I call four accounts of the second coming, Revelation 4 through Revelation 8. Second, and then you have Revelation 8 through 8, uh, Revelation 11, Revelation 12 through 14, then uh, Revelation 15 through 19. So understand, you got those four counts. If you divide those up and read each one, one of them as a section of the second coming of Christ, and don't let them run right into each other, you're like, well, I thought that happened over here. You don't look at it chronologically. All right? You start seeing, oh, okay, here's a, there. Okay, now I'm going to do something else with it. The seven seals are in the seven churches. Seven trumpets are in the seventh seal. Now, the, the, the seven seals, I'm going to call that the long story. You go up through the seven seals, go through the horsemen, and through the earthquakes, and then the angels. They see the, that angels in the seventh seal, and the angels are one that starts blowing the trumpet of the seven trumpets. Does that make sense? So the last seal's an angel. Angel starts blowing the trumpet, and it blows out the seven trumpets. But when you see it, you got what I call the long story. A shorter story is, is, is with the trumpets. And then I call it the shortest story. If you want to read that fourth one, the shortest story uh, is in uh, the vials. You can start reading those, and you want to get it quickly, you can do that. And I tell people when they ask me, I'll say, well, read the short story first, and then I'll give them uh, those scriptures uh, there. I say, read the short one first, uh, then go to the next. So when I come to the book of Revelation, I'll group them, and I'll read them backwards. It just works better in my brain. Other people, it probably wouldn't. In mine, it does. So I get the short one. Okay, let's get a little bigger view. I get more information. And all right, let's do the long puppy, you know. And I get more information. Understanding that that whole book of Revelation was written to those seven churches. 
you see. Then John ended up in Ephesus probably taking this revelation, and then he distributed these letters out of Ephesus. So he sat there the last part of his life probably getting... I can just imagine him having a hundred scribes. All right, write this page. Everybody write this one. We're going to send this out. We're going to send this one out. So it was his point of dis distribution, you could say. Okay. Let me get on through that. I stayed a little longer there than I meant to. What did I do? Okay. Short summary of the book. Who is John? I'm going to hit this to begin with. Who is John? Y'all know who John is. I know you know who John is. But I want to remind you of who John is. John is referred to in Scripture as the disciple who, whom Jesus loved. And you say, well, Alan, why do you put that in there? I don't know but what he's not referred to more in that phrase than his name. Is that, is that not amazing? When his close friends spoke about John, they didn't say, well, there's John. They say, there's the one who Jesus loved. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's the way it looks like they handle it. And I, I think it's so cool. Uh, and you'll see how it's depicted here. Now, look, he was the youngest one of the disciples. So I don't know if Jesus loved him or if he kind of, you know, this naive kid, I'm going to bring him in a little closer or what, what he was doing. But Jesus referred to him that way. I, th I think it's cool because there's a lot of revelation in that statement when you start studying the life of John. Now, John and his brother James were fishermen. So you got John and you got James's brother called out of their boat by Jesus to become fishers of men. So that's, uh, that's John's place. He had his brother James. But John, there again, is the one that Jesus called out, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, Matthew 4, 19, and he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So that's kind of who John is. Uh, now, Jesus gave John and James a nickname. Does anybody know what that nickname was? Sons of Thunder. Is that not cool? Jesus gives these two a nickname, and he called them Sons of Thunder. And James, uh, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother James, and he surnamed them uh, Bongerus, which is the sons of thunder. And uh, so that also, I think, means something. But there is a whole story right there. You see how the scriptures are so, uh, and it's hard not to get off on a little trail on these scriptures. But I wanted you to know when you see you know, the sons of thunder, uh, who he's referring to. Now, there you got Jesus. This is a painting of the Last Supper, of course, uh, but I got a square there. Now, you, you'll see in the Lord, in the Last Supper, uh, all the time, you'll see, a lot of paintings, you'll see that. So, do you know who that is? It's John. Why? Because Jesus said, it's the one that I love. Right? So the paintings of uh, down through the ages, you'll see this happen a lot at the Last Supper. And if you'll also notice, he's the youngest looking one in the picture. But I want you to see and feel just a little bit more of who is John that wrote these letters. John traveled and ministered alongside Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, and John saw many miracles of Jesus. He was also at the transfiguration in Matthew. And it says this in verse 17, After six days Jesus uh, taketh Peter, James, and John's his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured 
uh, before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. Now, if you'll notice there, he was transfigured before them, his face, verse 2, did shine as the sun, and raiment was white. Does that not look a little bit like he did when he had saw him in Revelation chapter 1? He talks about raiment and all this. So you know that John knew who he was seeing. When he started seeing Jesus, that was the second in that transfigured form, not the first time he'd seen him. Now, Raymond is light, and behold, the appear, he appeared unto them Moses and Elias uh, talking with him. Uh, then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for uh, us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make uh, here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on his face uh, and were so afraid. I've been in a situation that was Jeff in that revival back at Shiloh. I'm sure I did not experience it to that extent, but we had one instant when the presence of God got so heavy or whatever word you want to use in the room that everybody in the room was flat on their face. You were scared to raise up, if you can hear what I'm saying. I'm saying that like, you know, come on, Alan, anybody going to believe that? But, it, but this, this is what happened. And, and so I can identify a little bit. And it's not that you're so smart and you know what God's doing. It's you're afraid if you breathe, He might kill you. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, so when we have a movement of God, it's amazing how a lot of people all of a sudden think very highly of themselves and they can interpret everything they're seeing of how God moves. And I'm like, he's not feeling the same thing I'm feeling. But anyway, when, the more God is in the room, my experience has been, the greater the fear of God I have. And that is the opposite from intellect or being smart. The more of God's moving, the less I feel like I know what to do or what's going on. Now, uh, so here's Jesus. John was also present at the death of Jesus on the cross as John was there. Jesus' mother Mary was also there. And, and it was here that Jesus entrusted uh, his mother. It was to John. Because John, but now listen, John's name was not mentioned in the Scripture. But yet Jesus on the cross entrusted his mother to John. Now, now watch it. Uh, John 19, 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. Uh, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved. Does anybody know who that is? That's what I'm saying. It's John. Uh, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to his disciple, Behold my, thy mother. Uh, from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. So how do we know that's John? Because he, he referred to him the one whom he loved. And it says that disciple, understanding, well everybody knows who Jesus talked about. He talked about John all the time being the one he loved, you see. And there was some jealousy at, several times over, I think, that statement. I think there's more, there's a lot to that statement uh, because that statement, I can't, I will not go into it in this teaching, but that statement connects to the bride of Christ, to the body of Christ. 
He died for the ones whom he loved were referred to. Just absolutely incredible. Uh, so anyway, I'll, you can study that out if you'd like. So here we got John also witnessed the empty tomb of Jesus. We know that happened in John 20 in verse 2. Um, then she uh, runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Anybody know who that is? And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and uh, we know not where they have laid him. Now I put this example up here, and, and I'm showing us, and I'm wanting you to start picking up on this reference. Uh, John wasn't called by name. There again, he was called by whom Jesus loved. Why? What is the deal? There is a deal. Because he was singled out as the one whom he loved. Now in this, key, this kingdom of God, in this day of grace that we're in, Jesus has singled us out as the ones whom he loved. Now you can carry that too far into predestination if you'd like. I advise you not to. It's a cul-de-sac. It's dead in road. Done tried it. Won't work. But we do know that we have found ourselves in this position that we are called the same as John, the one whom Jesus loved. It's absolutely incredible. Now, let's move on again. We have a resurrection here of Jesus. John was there and saw the resurrected Jesus. Uh, he says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, uh, that Jesus uh, came Jesus and stood in their midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said, uh, so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me. Even so send I you. So John was there, eyewitness. Uh, John was also there, we know, at the ascension in Acts 9, uh, 1, verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. Cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you in heaven, so shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Second coming of Christ. Now he makes this point to say this is coming up on the scene. All right? So that's the reason I say this whole book, you get into the book of Acts. Uh, it's speaking about this uh, second coming of Christ. Now, John was there at the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, so I've, I've tried to do just a, just a quickie trail of John, his first encounter with Christ as he moved through his whole life. John's been there a lot. So when it comes to the book of Revelation and Jesus gave that to him, you would almost think that, you know, this is pretty natural. And plus, you know, it looks like... Jesus maybe played favored a little. I don't think he had any, but yet he treated him as that way. So John was there at Pentecost in Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak 
with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we know that John was there. We also know that uh, these guys went out preaching. John became one of the most influential leaders in the early uh, Christian church. John and his writings. John passed his teachings and knowledge down to his students like Polycarp and uh, somebody pronounced it Ignatius. I looked it up. I heard the pronunciation. Like I said, I can't memorize anything. I got to it. I said it ten times at home. Couldn't remember. So Polycarp and Ignatius were both considered uh, to be church fathers. So we can see that he started passing. John passed it. Y'all remember Polycarp, I hope, in the book, uh, in the church of Ephesus. And of course, he ended up there being mar martyred at an old age, but nonetheless, he was martyred. So now, then we get into John. Okay, now John is exiled. Uh, there's some interesting things to remember about John before he wrote to the seven churches. Christianity had spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire. It was challenging uh, ancient pagan worship and the political landscape of Rome. So here you got more information about the kingdom of God. Paul pretty much spread it on top of what Peter and those guys were preaching. That's the reason some people say, well, you baptized John or Peter or Paul? Who, who, who baptized you? They were associating that with that uh, bit of information these were giving. And uh, so anyway, but what was challenging, uh, Christianity was challenging to the Jewish synagogues and it was also challenging to Rome. So how in the world did it flourish? And it flourished because they had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. They were just obedient to the call. Now, Rome had all intentions of stopping it, but the light continued to dispel the darkness. Now, that's what we need to remember. Light dispels darkness. The intellect doesn't dispel stupidity. Okay. That one didn't cost anything. Probably wasn't God either. By the end of the first century, many of John's friends had been martyred for their faith. John was the last living apostle and was exiled to Patmos, a small island off the Aegean Sea. So that kind of brings you up to date a little bit of, of, uh, of his, his Christian life, his walk with Christ. And we find that he was there all the way through. And then he ended up being the last apostle. Then he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Now this is a picture of, of what is considered to be the cave in which this is their traditional uh, site on Patmos, the cave that's been given to John where he got his revelations. I think it's had a, an update since he, since he was there, I believe. Uh, none, nonetheless, that is, uh, that's interesting. Now, the incredible vision of Christ himself would be the continuation of John's relationship with the Savior. Now, that's important because John gets to the book of Revelation and you say, well, how did John get the revelation? Well, the way John got the revelation, it was just a continuation of his relationship with Jesus. So the benefit of our continuation of our relationship with Jesus is we'll get more revelations in life and of truth. 
It's just the way it works. Uh, and it's because it's kind of who you hang out with is who you uh, tend to become. So that's what happened to John. Now in a cave in the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John had a vision of Christ in His glory. He wrote down the revelations he had received on a scroll uh, that became known as a revelation, and he sent it to the seven churches in Asia Minor with a personal letter addressed to each church. Each letter has a strong message to convey to the churches, always in view of Christ's soon return. And right there, we'll have to stop. I'm now going to get in. I'm actually going to, I, I just felt compelled with the Spirit uh, to say, Alan, I want you to show, want you to show more about John. John needs to be more personal, personable to everybody and see why I even gave it to John, so to speak. That's what I was sensing. So we'll start here on how the church is to progress in the future from here in light of the, the letters to the seven churches. How do we receive it? I think it's very encouraging to know. And don't think John's a one out. Okay? John is the one that Jesus loved. Who, is, who are we? The ones that Jesus loved. And that's uh, just, just remember that because it just so happens in all of God's parentheses that this time period that we're living in is a special time. It is so easy to be born again. It is so easy, you'll miss it. And, uh, and also after we're born again, our relationship with Christ equals more revelations of the truth of who He is. If you find your Christianity getting dull, it's because you stopped in your relationship with Jesus. Let's stand. Lord God, thank you for these uh, scriptures. Thank you for your holy word. Lord, I pray you know our deal. If I've said anything that's not of you, I pray, oh God, that uh, this group would just look over it and forgive me. But Lord, if I've said anything of you and truth, I pray that it'll be quickened to our hearts and our minds and our spirits, that we might be transformed and changed from glory to glory. Let us be called... Uh, uh, loved by you. And let us receive that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.